Okay, so last week we kind of closed with a question. So we were dealing with Hebrews chapter 3, and we were talking about, you know, I, we spent most of the time talking about the fact that there are always two, two groups of people. Wherever God's people gather, there are always two groups of people. There are the true and there are the false. And that's, that's, uh, that's taught in many places in Scripture. Uh, not the least of which would be the parable of the wheat and tares. And then we looked at that verse in, in uh, Matthew chapter 7 where there would be those who would come up before the Lord in the last day firmly convinced that they were true disciples of God only, only to discover that they never belonged to him. And, uh, and so that, that should be something that should cause all of us to... Uh, to sit up and take notice. And then we looked at that passage, I think it was in either 1st or 2nd Corinthians 13, where it says that we are to examine ourselves and test ourselves daily. So, so that was method one that we kind of agreed upon last week on how to make sure that we are, we are not in the group that is self-deceived. And then the second part is kind of where we left off in Hebrews chapter verse 12 um, or actually yeah uh, beware brethren lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God so uh, the author was obviously concerned that that some of those who were who were part of this messianic uh, Jewish group or congregation um, Nancy I have notes for you here uh, were not had maybe not made the full commitment, hence the struggle with the whole issue of, of, uh, of Jesus as the Messiah, both God and man, and that his revelation being superior to that of angels. So he's, he appears to be addressing them uh, in this text in Hebrews chapter 3. And so, you know, he says to them, he, he talks about this trajectory of unbelief, right? And so... Uh, so an evil heart of unbelief, it can actually be translated an evil heart of disbelief or a disbelieving heart tends to manifest, manifest itself over the course of time in departing, in, in making the initial confession, the initial embracing of the truth, and then over the course of time when trials and tribulations which are sent by the providence of God come, to test our hearts, right? That was the whole purpose of the testings that, that the Jews who came out of Egypt on the Exodus, in the Exodus, that was the whole point of it, that God would test their hearts. And the interesting part about all that, it's not as if God didn't know their hearts, but he tested their hearts, I think, to actually show them what was in their hearts. You, you'll notice that. I, I don't know if you've noticed that, but when you go through periods of of testing in your life and and I, I'm not talking about you know the day-to-day tests like I got a flat tire or this or that but the real heavy-duty tests that come into your life that you'll see things well maybe you won't but I certainly have that bubble to the surface that I never even knew was there certain certain behaviors or attitudes or certain things that I never even knew were there you know, and so I think that's the purpose of, of the, the testing. The difference being is those who've been given the, the gift of faith see that and recognize it. Those who have not don't. They just don't. They don't, they don't see, they don't have the, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit pointing out to them, see, see this thing? I'm bringing this upon you in your life because I need you to see this, you know. And so, but the uh, but those who are not appointed to eternal life, they don't see it because they don't have that inward spiritual life. And so he's talking to them like, be careful, watch out. If you see this thing in yourself, right? Okay. And then he gave the second method of how we can test ourselves or how we can assure ourselves in verse 13 but exhort one another daily while it is called today okay 
So this is where we left off last week. This is a command. This is not optional. And I left you with a question. Can we fulfill this? Culturally, can we fulfill this? And that, this is actually even a discussion that, you know, I, I came to the church to do some things yesterday, had this discussion with Pastor Roman yesterday. This is, this is a command. It's not an option. This is a command. And the warning here that if we fail to abide by this command, notice what it says, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So I left you with that question last week. Can we fulfill this commandment? Culturally, are we able to fulfill this commandment? Is it something that we can do? Yes? So what changes would we have to make in order to be able to fulfill this commandment, this command, right? So this is, this is something that, you know, you know the, the term that, that kind of explains what is being said here is the term doing life together, right? This is, this is a hard thing for us, but there are communities with which that is, this is not a hard thing to do. Orthodox, the Orthodox Jewish community would be one. The Mennonites, the Amish, they would be another. They do life together, right? And so, and so the, 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 the worship in the case of Orthodox Jews, the worship of the Ainsof, as the mystical wing call him, or Jehovah, is the central component around which they unite. That is the cohesive element that brings them together. The same holds true with the Mennonites, the same holds true with the Amish. But what about us? Go ahead. So, I guess it, it depends on how you look at how this goes about. B'nai Torah? B'nai Torah? Well, I don't know. I mean, I know if, if we look at, you know, the examples we have in Scripture, right, it is the community daily, right? There's some sort of community involvement daily. That's what you find in the book of Acts. Yep. Yeah, and that's what you find in, well, in the Old Testament. Right, the central, the central... In other words, nothing happened in the Old Testament without the synagogue, right? That's where you, you needed to have the minion. You needed to have 10 people to have to, to, for it to be a legitimate Shabbat service. But that was also the way matters both civil and religious were, were, were dealt with, which is still the case today in the Orthodox Jewish community, right? So if there's a, if, if you know, so... 
if a Jewish woman today wants to divorce her husband, she has to go before a rabbinical council and get what's called and sue her husband for a get. So there's, there's that sense in which the, the community life revolves around their worship of Jehovah, or at least their idea of what true Jehovah worship is. Right. And, it's and a distorted view. Right. So, so I'm not sure, you know, I, I think, but there are, there are things we can do, right? So this is it. Sunday service, but with us it's a cultural difference. There's a big cultural difference well, because we are for us here and now, but down the road it's maybe not so much. And in the past, not so much. Right. right? Even in this country. Are you seeing something like a it's like a, a, tar- a tarantula going across the floor? Sure so, <laughs> so 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 that's any in either case the scripture says that this is a hedge against becoming deceived and succumbing through the deceitfulness of sin to the hardening of the heart right our hearts can even though we are believers our hearts can be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin and and that's that's interesting why would, and here's something for discussion, why would sin, which we know is bad, um, be qualified in this particular verse as something deceitful? Any ideas? The deceitfulness of sin, that is, sin has in the innate ability and propensity to deceive someone, to deceive believers. Mark? But how, in what way, what does that actually look like? You know, that's, that's the thing is, we know that sin has the capacity to deceive because the scriptures tell us that. But what does that actually look like in real life. So we have to we have to be able to identify it, right, beyond just the terminology so we can recognize it when it starts to pop up in our lives. More than that, it's according to that verse we just read, we are to be watching out for this in the lives of one another. Okay, all right. Anyone else? I'm thinking if, if it becomes like a pattern or a habit of like a habitual sin where let's say we're ignoring each other, somebody might have called it out early. So you wouldn't have progressed into a pattern and went, went unchecked. Mm-hmm. If we were together more than hey, no, this is doing wrong. And would that be exhorting? So, so now this brings up a key. A key point that the author is that, that the the author of Hebrews is making here. So we are to be watching out that this doesn't happen. Not only in ourselves, most of the time we can't even spot it happening in ourselves. We need those around us to spot it out. Right. Say it's happening. So so let's say that within our within our fellowship any given fellowship, there is scenario number one, a believer that has clearly come under the bewitching, deceitful influence of some, some particular sin in his or her life. Is that going to have an impact on the whole body? Will that have an impact on the whole body? Left unchecked, yes. But if there's a formula to go to that person one-on-one, then with witnesses, and then before the congregation. Okay, all right. So it will have an effect. Let's just stop right there. It will have an effect on the whole, on the whole body. Now, what if, 
we can pretty much take this to the bank, that in any given fellowship, just like here, there are those who are genuine believers and those who are not genuine believers. Will that have an impact on the fellowship, on, the, on that fellowship? Of course it does. All right. So now let's say, because I can't judge another person's heart and you can't judge another person's heart, right? So we're not here to judge each other. But let's just say that there is a, a question in your mind, Doug, whether my conversion is, is truly legitimate based upon some things that you may have seen, some interactions you may have had with me. What should your stance and response be and course of action be in that? I'm asking you, in particular to me. Yes. You need to exhort them to believe. Yes. And, and to turn and repent. Yes. Now, now, what if, what if I am that unbeliever, but I am fully convinced that I am a believer? How would you, how would you begin to, to undermine that false stronghold? Yeah, well, it actually, this is exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing here. You see, he's... I can't that. You can't overcome that, but what you can do is point out those passages in Scripture that show where there were X amount of people who were convinced that they were the people of God, and they weren't. And they didn't find out it was until, until it was too late. Hence, the phrase, today, if you will hear your, his voice... Do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. He's quoting those passages and bringing them forward and using them against those in this congregation who may think they're believe, who may think that they are believers, but haven't made the full commitment of Christ. And what he's saying to them, if you're hearing this, if this is what the Spirit is speaking to you, then respond today to it. Don't put it off till tomorrow. Okay. Yes. And blinding you to sin. Yes. So that's the, the deceitfulness of sin that's in the church. And the falling away is the moving moving uh, in rebellion against God, putting your hand, you know, no type of thing. Um, when, when he's quoting this, he's quoting those, those Old Testament um, Jewish people who ended up dying in the wilderness. Yeah. That's a good question. You know, that's a good question. Um, I, if I had to make a decision, I would say the ones who died in the wilderness were all unbelievers. That's, but that's most of them. That's most of them. Which is which is what it says that they could not enter in because of unbelief. They couldn't enter into God's rest because of unbelief. So they began the journey but could never cross the finish line because, because they, didn't, they, they were unbelievers, right? And so, and so only two that were above the age of 18, right? Joshua and Caleb, and then er any, everyone who was under 18 were allowed to enter into the land. But remember what happened before they entered into the land, even those who were under 18, the covenant was renewed in Moab. And at that point, they were being warned that what they were about to agree to applied not only to them, but to everyone who would come after them as well. 
and that there would be incredible blessings if they if they walked in obedience and incredible consequences if they walked in disobedience right so this is what the this is what the author he's using the whole exodus journey and transition into the promised land as a metaphor on a on a a global scale so to speak that that God calls people out. He calls them onto a journey, but not everyone makes it into the promised land. And so we should be watching out over ourselves. And, you know, if you have a, a brother or a sister that you're not really sure where they are spiritually, even though they're coming every Sunday, you know, they have the, the all the right Christian ease terminology. I mean, you you obviously care for them right and so you you don't want to see them fall away on the journey so that you come alongside them and you exhort them and you do exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing here to those in this messianic Jewish congregation who may not be saved because he points out to them look just because you're here just because you've made you've begun the journey it doesn't mean that you're going to cross over into God's rest, right? Okay. All right, so let me read on. Verse 14, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. You see, there it is. It's, it's really if and only if, right? So you don't get credit for going 95% of the way. You know, there's no, there's no bronze or silver medal in this. You either go all the way or you don't go at all. And so what he's saying there in the next verse, again, he goes back to quote the Old Testament. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So what he's saying is if this is speaking to you, if you're hearing what I'm saying here, and your spirit and God's spirit is saying that this is an issue that you need to deal with it, deal with it today. While you hear it, while you're feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit, because there's no guarantee that you will feel the same conviction tomorrow. Okay. Verse 16, for who having heard rebelled? Indeed, was it, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see then that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So those who did not enter in, didn't enter in because there was no faith. There was no faith. And so they couldn't enter in. Okay, now let's go to the notes for tonight. And let's pick it up from there. So I'm just going to read for a bit. Um, so I'm just going to start on point C on page 1. Chapter 3 led us into a consideration of how all those who came out of Egypt did not make it to the promised land. On the journey, God tested their hearts, and many of them failed the test. Tests come in many different forms, but they all point to one thing, and that is what is really in our hearts. They show how much we really desire to make it to the promised land and how much we are willing to sacrifice and endure to get there. The greater multitude could not go in because at the end of the day, what was in their heart was unbelief. You see, it was easy to believe when they saw God strike down the firstborn, go before them in a pillar of smoke by day and fire by night, parting the ocean in front of them. But it was not so easy to believe and keep walking in belief when things got really hard. They and we cry out to God and no one answers and it seems that we are all alone in the universe. Even Jesus to the uttermost experienced this when he cried out on the cross, My God, why have you forsaken me? That's out of Psalm 22. God doesn't go anywhere. He's just testing us to show us what's really in our hearts and we need to pay attention 
to, to what our heart shows us during these tests. And during these tests, again, to quote, if you will, today, if you will hear, don't harden your hearts, respond, act on it today. Which introduces the second warning in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Jeremiah tells us about our hearts, thus we need checks and balances to keep our hearts from deceiving us. And that verse from last week, um, that quote out of Jeremiah is, let me find it in the notes, in Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Okay, so Jeremiah tells us about that. So we need the checks and balance. Checks in, the check and balance of Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You know, this can be doable, right? You know, we can exhort one another daily, right? I mean, with all of the technology we have now, like, you know, there are times when, when, uh, when Joe and I will text back and forth multiple times during the day. The same thing with Pastor Roman, you know, I'll text with him and, and uh, you know, Richard Lamoureux will shoot me some text. So this is possible to do it. I think, I think what, is, what, it, what is a prerequisite is that at least at some point during the day, spiritual things are on our mind, right? You know, it, it, our lives can get so busy that we can go hours and sometimes even days without spiritual things, spiritual things being on our mind. And so, so I think we have to be intentional about it, right? And if you're intentional about it, like when I found that, you know, what I, what I think was a, a cryptic reference in the book of Isaiah to the rapture, I sent it right to you. Hey, what do you think about this? You know, and... Um, and so those kinds of things, and you know, Rich, Richard Lamoureux will, with Richard, it's usually something about you know, evil kingdoms and the end times. He'll send me things, you know, and so when you when you become intentional about sequestering a certain part of your mind and your time every day to consider spiritual things. Those kinds of things are naturally going to arise because you have, your, as you were pointing out, your circles, your circle of family, your circle of friends that, you know, you, you, you discuss these things with that you're naturally going to reach out. When you see something that you've not seen before in the scriptures, it excites you. I know it excites me and I want to share it with the people around me. Like you guys remember when I finally figured out who Melchizedek was, I was texting all of you guys, you know, asking you, hey, you know, check this, check that, you know. And so it, those, are, those are kind of things that excite me. And they excite me and make me want to spend more time in God's word, right? Because that is, that is God disclosing things to me. And more or less, with each thing he discloses to me, he baits me. You know, he gets me to nibble on the hook a little bit more, you know, and pulls me down. Deep. I mean, I just spent two months studying the book of Isaiah. Literally one to two, sometimes three hours a day. Just because, oh, really? Then what about this? And what about that? So, so I think if we're intentional about spending time every day and and I don't don't get me wrong devotions are important but you know the dev way devotions work you read them and then you move on right but actually pick something and say you know what I'm going to just study this you know I'm going to I'm going to take one chapter a day and I'm I'm going to study this and I'm going to learn what I can about it and I'm going to ask God to show me something from God's word. And you know what? God will. And then you're going to get excited and you want to share it with people around you in your life that, you know, that you're walking the same path, so to speak. Right? Okay. So, 
Yeah, and I think that that's like another component of doing life together, right? The whole small group concept, right? And so, you know, so I, I'm not sure about one thing that I'm I'm kind of conflicted about is is studying books about the Bible rather than studying the Bible. You know, I'm a little conflicted about that. Um, I think there's a I think there is a um, unnecessary component of doing that, but I think that it has to be balanced, right? It can't be always studying books about the Bible rather than studying the Bible, you know? And dry. Yes. Yeah, because one of the, one word is living, and the other one is about the word that's living. Yeah, no, that th yeah, that's right. This is the this is completely different than anything else. These words are they're life-giving and life-sustaining, right? So there's there's something that is radically different about this of, about what's here, right? It is <laughs> only God could pull this off, right? That He can express Himself in written form in such a way so that what is written is actually alive. You know, only God could pull that one off. You know. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and that is different than devotions. It's different than devotions. I, I think, I mean, de there's a place for devotions, but devotions can become <laughs> the Protestant equivalent of the rosary in Catholicism. No, think about it. But think about it, right? Well, devotion, well, like Spurgeon's morning and evening, right? He'll pick a verse, and then he'll, the, the morning devotion will be his thoughts about that verse, which are true, and they're good. But what happens is, over time, it becomes a rote exercise. We pick up the book, it's January 13th, this is what it says for the morning. Okay, I've done that, boom, off. Check off, right? And so, it can, I'm not saying it is, but I'm saying it can become the Protestant equivalent of saying the rosary. So, I have a different picture. It, it is the mama bird feeding the young, regurgitating what she chews into them, which is not a really pretty picture. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you know what? Here's the thing. Every believer, every true believer has the Holy Spirit within them. And the, and the promise of Christ is that the Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth. He would take what was his and declare it to us. The problem is, is you know what? We just need to believe it and act on it. We need to believe it and act on it. And be excited about it. You know, and so I think that, so for example, if we see people in our midst who are struggling in this area, what we should be willing to do is, sh is share some of the zeal. And, and I'm excited about this, you know, and let me share this with you, you know, that kind of thing. And you don't have to do that face-to-face. -face. You can do that through text messaging. You could do that through all kinds of, you know, I, I don't know if you want to put it up on, on open social media, 
platform like Facebook, but heck, why not? How many people are on social media who are not in the faith who might see that and say, wow, what, what, is, what is this? Why are they so pumped up about this thing here, you know? Okay. I'm not exactly sure what the point of all that was, but we went there anyway. Okay. So, okay, so at the bottom of page one, last week we talked about this verse and its command to us that we need to daily exhort one another. The fact that we may or may not be doing this will bring with it inevitable consequences. Okay, over on page two, warning number three. There is a time of rest coming for us, but that time is not, but now is not the time. We need to keep going. Hebrews chapter four, verse one says, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. So that therefore always introduces a statement on the basis of what has been previously said, let us fear or be fearful. I mean, this is something that we should be fearful of, right? Lest anyone come short, which means lack or need, or did not have the recess to make it to the end of the race or the end of the contest. Now, two texts which really illustrate this. The first one is found in Matthew chapter 13. So let's turn in our Bibles for a moment to Matthew chapter 13, which really gives us a perfect illustration of what the author of Hebrews is driving at here when he talks about coming up short. So this is the parable of the sower, uh, and so coming up short. So we we look at the, we look at this right, the parable of the sower. This is equates with the seed uh, that was planted on on um, on shallow ground, right? So it dies quickly. In verse twenty one, it says, "Yet he has no root in himself." but endures only for a while, for when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they stumbles, right? And so this is what happens. They, 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 they embrace the faith. They outwardly embrace the faith, but when things get tough, they walk away from it, right? And so this is kind of, it's kind of foreign for us because we've we've not been because you'll notice the specific the specific qualification there persecution because of the word right so what word is it being talked about here it's because of of the faith because of Christianity we've not really experienced that right we really haven't experienced persecution or tribulation because of the word but rest assured those times are a changing those times are changing. Maybe not so much for us, but your children and their children, this is going to be a real issue. This is going to be a real issue. So, so when, we, when we think of, you know what, I, I need to make sure that I'm not coming up, I'm not in danger of coming up short. It's also something we should be concerned about for those around us, not the least of which would be members of our own family, right? Okay, so that's one passage. The other passage is Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. I think this is the, this is the passage that I had in my mind. This is the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were foolish and five were wise. Those who were foolish took with their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in, in their vessels with their lamps, but the bridegroom was delayed. They all slumbered and slept, and at midnight a cry was heard. 
Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for your lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should be not be enough for us and you, but go rather to, the to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And so there's that idea of not having enough oil to go the distance. Right? Okay. And the one that I'm thinking about for some, for some, for some reason I don't have listed here is when Jesus said, you know, before you go out to war, make sure you have enough, you know, enough soldiers to, to, you know, and enough supplies to see the war all the way through to the end, or else you're going to have to turn back and hang your head in shame, right? And so this is a concern. All right, and then it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, back on the notes, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things which you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Okay, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. They heard the word, but faith was, was missing. How do, we, how do we know if we are hearing, and that hearing is mixed with faith? So there you go. There's... There's another question for us to consider. How do we know that we're hearing the word and that our hearing of the word is mixed with faith? I mean, these are, these are, they're, they're kind of common sense questions, but for, the, for some reason we don't often ask them. We, the common sense questions that we should all ask ourselves, but we don't, for some reason, they seem to, it, it seems to miss that, you know? How do, how do I know that what I'm hearing is mixed with faith? Well, yeah, I believe it, but that in and of itself doesn't prove, but what is, okay, so I say I believe it, but what is the proof that I actually believe it? We're back to the same thing. James chapter 2. Well, I do, but what is the, what is the proof that, that what I'm saying I believe, I actually believe, and it's not just self that I'm self-deceived. I get it, but that's still subjective, right? Well, it, well, it is subjective, right? It, it's and it's subjective even to you, right? Because you haven't experienced the full gamut of what of what life could possibly throw at you, let alone Satan and his demons, right? And so, I, I hear what you're saying, and it's theoretically, it's it's subjective and it's theoretical, right? So, but how do I know that I am the word that I'm hearing, the word that I've read to you right now, I'm, I actually, it's mixed with faith, which is the only way it can translate into true belief is if it's mixed with faith. And the faith that we're, we're talked about here is not the same kind of faith that says if I sit on that chair, the legs are not going to collapse. 
it's a different kind of faith. It's a supernatural faith that can only be imparted to you and to me through the grace of God. How do I know that that kind of faith has been, that kind of supernatural faith has been imparted to me so that when I read, but as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine in Titus chapter 2 verse 1. I'm reading the word, I'm hearing the word, I understand the word, but how do I know that that understanding is being mixed with faith? It's a common sense question, right? But, but it's a hard question to answer. Not so hard, but, but the answer to that question is found in the scriptures, Yes, it effectuates change in our lives, right? And so I may not, you know, I mean, it is by nature. It is my nature, and I'm very good at it. When someone crosses me to, to take my revenge in a very subtle but very powerful, I am very good at it. And I am very sharp-tongued and sharp-witted. And to me... Not only don't I get it, but I don't much like it when God's word tells me, leave no place for vengeance. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Right? I don't understand it, and I don't much like it, but yet I'm going to go with it. Right? And so I'm willing to conform to God's word, obedience is never tested when you agree. Obedience is only tested when you disagree, right? And so, and so that that is, you know, that's what this is about. I think. Again, I got lost on one of those rabbit trails. Okay. So James 2:14 to 20, that was, you know, that was the next passage, and Doug, you kind of, you know, already brought that out in your comment. So you need to do it, right? So um, in what we studied about uh, Israel, Jews first and also to the Greeks, there was a whole understanding that this has been confronting me through my Christian walk, and they kind of didn't see. Yeah. So so that that's really it. And so it, it is a willingness to not not only a willingness, but even a desire to conform. When God shows you something and he does, you're saying, you know what? I'm I'm gonna do that, you know, because I trust him, you know. Okay. Isn't that the definition of repentance? Uh yeah, it's be willing to change direction, to change course. Right. But that can't happen if, if that supernatural faith is, is not a, a prime component that's present within you when you're reading God's word. You see? All right. For five minutes. Okay, where was I? 
Okay, verse, so point eight on number two. For we who have believed do, do enter that rest. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. The author here switches to the present tense to demonstrate that we who do believe now have begun to enter into that rest, right? And this is, this is where he draws a corollary with the Exodus. Those who left Egypt had begun to enter into that rest, but never made it into that rest because of disbelief, because of unbelief. Okay. Uh, the Point 10, the rest that is being spoken of here is creation rest. Though we have begun to enter into the full measure, uh, enter in, the full measure of that rest is future. And thus, we cannot rest on our laurels or past accomplishments as the Israelites did. And again, here's a quote. For he has spoken in a certain place on the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. The rest that is promised us has been prepared. Verse 4 once again speaks of creation rest as a completed work. It is a type of redemption rest that was completed by the Messiah. We will one day enjoy the fullness of that rest when our work here on earth is complete and we will go to our home in heaven. Verse 5 shows us that Israel failed to enter into that rest. Verse 6 tells us why. Since therefore it remains that some must enter in, and those to whom it first preached did not enter in because of disobedience. Israel failed to enter into that rest they were invited to participate in. They failed through disobedience, yet there is a promise of rest in a people to whom it is promised. Verse 7, again he de designates in a certain day saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Okay, I want to just drop back for a moment there to verse, uh, uh, let's see, uh, verse 3, because as I made them as I made mention in the comment the author here switches to the present tense and he says we have begun to enter into that rest well in what sense have we as believers today and those who were believers of this messianic congregation begun to enter into that rest while they were still on this side of eternity while we're still on this side of eternity in what sense? Okay, okay, Doug. That's right. Now, this that would apply to the Messianic Jews of this congregation. Yeah, this would not apply to us as Gentiles, right? So, but yes, absolutely, they no longer have to do, they no longer have to worry about that, right? Fulfilling the commandments, all 613 of them. They, so in a sense, they've entered into the rest that the Messiah has, has, has accomplished for them, right? And so now think about, think about the Exodus wandering, right? So God brought them out of the wilderness, uh, out of Egypt, and was going to take them into the promised land. Along the way, he provided everything they needed. Their shoes never wore out, all of that stuff, right? But it was at those points when their faith began to waver that they began to worry about those things. They could have gone through that wilderness journey without ever having to spend one day worrying or one day in doubt. So in that sense, they had begun to enter into that rest. But that rest that they had begun to enter into was being interrupted 
because of those points where they were being tested and their faith, their belief began to waver. And the same thing holds true for us. Right? We have begun to enter into that rest. We don't have to worry about dying. We don't have to worry about, you know, is God going to provide for us? We don't have to worry about how this, that, or the other thing is going to go because God's already got it marked out. And so if we can, to the degree that we're able to live in that space, we've entered into the rest. But to the degree that we doubt, we, doubt, we, come, we back out of that place of rest. You see that? That's what the author is driving at here. Yes. Sure. Yeah, but that's a hard place to live. It's a hard place to get to. Right, but but we can progressively move towards that place of rest and I think we all see that I think we've all experienced that in our in our walk of faith right that that though we may not be where we want to be we're certainly further along than we were than when we began the journey right and so that's what the author is saying here there there is a promised rest right and we've begun to enter into that rest but we need to be watching out for the deceitfulness of sin and the corrosive effect that it can have on our, on our obedience. Because once obedience starts to slip, what starts to happen? Anxiety and fear starts to go up and the rest quotient begins to decrease and diminish. Okay, let me just finish this off and then we're done. Uh, under conclusion, while we have entered into that rest... Its full enjoyment and participation awaits fulfillment in the future. We need to keep moving, keep going, keep growing. For the promise of rest is only those who make it to the finish line. Again, you don't get credit for going 99.5% of the way. You don't get credit for going 99.99% of the way. You only get credit if you cross the finish line. That's it. Okay. The finish line is different for each individual. It is basically dying in a state of grace and faith. And we have already looked at what real faith looks like. We have to keep paying attention to the things we have heard, lest we slip away. We have to be on the lookout for those things in our hearts that will lead us into unbelief. We need to exhort and encourage one another daily to keep moving, keep going, keep growing. The spiritual metaphor of the wilderness wanderings. They were promised rest, but so few ever made it. When life got hard, they resorted to disobedience. This disobedience led to unbelief in their hearts. They lost their faith and thus could not enter into the rest that was offered them. And verse 8 says, For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not afterward have spoken of another day. We will enter fully into that rest if we continue to press ahead Press on, keep going, and keep growing. All right, we're caught up. Right on time. Any questions, any comments? Well, no, because you have to take the whole counsel of Scripture together. But it may, so if you're living in obedience to the scripture, you don't have to worry about those things. Right. right? And so, you know, and so th there's always that, that, there's always that side that gets, without, without, nah, I'm not going to say anything about it. I'm just going to leave it at that. Because I have found that that is always the argument of unbelief. The argument of an unbelieving heart says, well, if then we shouldn't have to bother working or doing any of those things. Yeah. That's the argument of unbelief. Yeah. 